This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Joe Biden traveled to Europe this week, but it is the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who has been making headlines, once again wading into the culture wars by signing a proclamation recognizing the runner-up, Emma Wendt, as what he called the rightful winner of the highest U.S. National College swimming title, because Emma Wendt came second to Leah Thomas who is transgender. Now the NCAA uh, is basically taking efforts to destroy women's athletics. They're trying to undermine the integrity of the competition. DeSantis keeps doing that, getting attention by pressing hot button polarizing issues, and it's working for him. He's now widely tipped as the second most likely Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential election, behind a certain Donald Trump. When a straw poll was done at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference in February, asking Republicans who they wanted as their candidate for 2024, DeSantis received 20 of the vote, although that was, of course, behind Donald Trump on 59%. Ron DeSantis is a former ally of Donald Trump, embracing the role of divisive politician just like his mentor. But not everyone is convinced he can appeal to a national audience the same way Trump did and still does. So what are the chances for Ron DeSantis? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. To learn more about the man deemed the leader of the non-Trump Republican pack, I wanted to speak to two people who live and breathe Florida politics. Anna Ceballos is a state government reporter for the Miami Herald, and Peter Shorsh, publisher of the website Florida politics. I started off by asking Anna to tell me a bit about what sets Florida apart and why Ron DeSantis has seemingly found a way to capitalize on the state's idiosyncrasies. I mean, one thing to know about Florida, right, is that it's always been a nail-biting close state when it comes to elections. So it's it's incredibly competitive and it's incredibly competitive because it's so diverse. And there's different types of voting blocks that uh, politicians, not just a Republican governor, just Democrats and Republicans have to consider when they run on certain issues, right? How the diverse perspectives will be impacted by certain policies. So I think just juggling that diversity makes Florida such a, has always made Florida a battleground state. Lately, it's becoming a little bit redder, right? I mean, we saw that with the 2020 election. CNN projects that uh, President Trump will win the state of Florida. A big win for President Trump. Even though it's a close race for Florida standards, it was not as close as other elections have been in the past. And uh, we are seeing a new movement uh, in terms of 
uh, red tide coming in and a lot of it has to do with some of these cultural issues. And I think that's something that DeSantis is really tapping into. What about you, Peter Shaw? You run, uh, you're the publisher of the website Florida Politics. This is your meat and drink. What is it about Florida politics that makes it different? And, you know, people know the novels of Carl Hyerson. They know about uh, alligators and crocodiles. It's a different kind of place. But what is it that makes Florida politics and how and where does Ron DeSantis fit into that? I think people need to remember that Florida is basically a second world state, uh, especially compared to the other large states in the United States that have a kind of a megapolis that anchors them, whether it be New York City or Los Angeles. But I think this really started with Rick Scott, and it was a realization that Florida was never going to become enlightened the same way that maybe even some of the other states in the South had become, like Virginia and North Carolina. This is a place of transition. And I always like to say this is a place where doctors who have had their medical license taken away can become chiropractors. <laughs> this is where people, after they get off of house arrest for a low-grade crime, they can come and start over, and there's no questions asked. The barrier to entry in Florida is so small. And so all of that is this cauldron of, of kind of a, a permanent underworking class of which Ron DeSantis is the furthest thing from. We're talking about a Yale, Harvard graduate. But what he is able to do better than anyone, maybe even better than Donald Trump, is know where that base is. You mentioned Rick Scott there, former governor of Florida, now uh, uh, in the United States Senate representing Florida. It's Ron DeSantis who's in the governor's mansion now. And as you say, uh, he's hardly the blue-collar guy, actually a very elite past with both Harvard and Yale to his name. Given all that, Anna Sabayos, how has Ron DeSantis made himself the champion for, as Peter Shaw says, a, a place where hard luck people can nevertheless uh, come and have a second chance, you, you know, a state which is known for being a place where those on modest incomes can nevertheless lead a good life. It does seem a strange fit, Ron DeSantis and that Florida. How do you explain it? For someone who attacks the quote unquote elites a lot, including recently, like some higher education systems, he is one of them. And he doesn't really like to bring too much attention to that fact because he wants to be almost known as more of a, a populist, right? If like, I am one of you, I am with the working class. So, you know, one thing to know about him is that, you know, he's a really astute, not just an astute politician, but an astute numbers and uh, intellectual. And he has known how to navigate political waters pretty well since the start. The reason why we're talking about him is because people are mentioning his name more and more often as a potential presidential nominee in 2024 and as perhaps the maybe the one Republican who could take on Donald Trump and potentially even edge ahead beat Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. So, I mean, a quiz question for both of you, really, which is, you know, how much like Donald Trump is he and what are the differences? Let's start with some of the areas where he really does seem to be playing the Trump 
game. And, and I'm thinking particularly of the pandemic. And Peter, j- just people noticed around the world, obviously, when Donald Trump was trying to play down the pandemic, be sceptical towards how seriously it should be taken, very dismissive of wearing a mask and so on. Ron DeSantis was there in the governor's mansion for the pandemic in its first wave and obviously since. What was his response to the pandemic and particularly how it measures up against Donald Trump and what it tells us about the two of them? I think it's important that we remember what DeSantis's reaction was in those first couple of months. And it is not this free state of Florida governor that we have now. Uh, I am recommending to the Board of Governors who are going to talk to the university presidents um, about going to remote learning for the rest of the spring semester at all Florida universities. Remember, it was DeSantis who did lock down Florida schools. He did lock down Florida businesses. He went along with most of this early on. Now, he did change by the time we got into the summer and fall of 2020, but he had a very different uh, course. He took a very different course than Donald Trump did. And it's important to remember that as kind of this like revisionistic history that DeSantis is trying to put out there that he was the most free. Listen, I was living in Florida. I know what was closed. The only thing that was really open were the cocktails to go and, and the boat ramps, but everything else was still very shut down. So he was just as Fauci as the rest of them. <laughs> but then Anna, he did pivot, right? Because he banned, I think, private companies, including cruise lines, from requiring vaccine. He appointed a, a, a vaccine skeptic to a key office in the state. I think he himself doesn't say, won't say, if he's got uh, himself a booster. You know, I think people should just make their own decisions on. Um, I'm not going to uh, let that be a, be a weapon for people to be able to use. I think it's a private matter. We- to the point where some people are saying he's trying to out-Trump Trump when it comes to COVID scepticism. Just explain the pivot to us and how it's working out for it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems that way where he's gone all the way to the right in terms of what no one wanted in terms of the pandemic restrictions, right? And once he changed the tune of what he wanted, he almost framed it as that that he was convinced that that was the way to go and that he is now convinced that it was never the way that it should have been. And his popularity really skyrocketed after he began embracing that the state should be open during the pandemic, that there's going to be no mandates, no vaccine passports for entering businesses or guests who come to Disney World, for example. The pandemic really was rocket fuel for DeSantis, and not just in Florida, but at the national level. And he got on the radar of pretty much all the conservatives and some independents across the country or people who agreed with fewer restrictions. From a big distance, Peter, I've been watching this in the Florida numbers. Uh, you know, they weren't good in terms of people contracting the illness and dying from it. And we want to zero in on Florida, which shattered its single day death toll record for the fourth straight day. And on top of that... How come Ron DeSantis didn't pay a price for, you know, certainly in one phase of this thing, Florida getting pretty sick from the pandemic? It's kind of sad, you know, and I will say from a personal level, my wife was in the ICU for about 31 days during the Delta surge. And I I saw firsthand, you know, a hospital wing go from eight patients to four floors of patients. And I've always I've I've just been amazed that Ron DeSantis hasn't paid a larger price for, you know, basically 
you know, we're going to end up at 75 to 80,000 people dead by the time people start voting. You know, he won by 30,000 votes here. There will have been twice as many people who have died from COVID as the margin of victory in his last election. That's how many people died. I think one of the ways DeSantis is succeeding is he has set us up as some sort of beacon to all the disaffected, to, to all the people who don't believe in these restrictions. And he is increasing the voter registration numbers substantially for Republicans. And so I think he is in better position now than he was in August or September of 2021. But Anna, I mean, it isn't just about COVID. And this is where he, you know, the Trump parallel comes to mind. He's got this thing of the war on what he calls woke, this bill that he's pushing through, which, I mean, is amazing. Stop the wrongs to our kids and employees act. Spell out the initials and it spells woke. I mean, it's that, it's race. I saw him having a go at the Disney Corporation the other day, just talking about woke corporations. You have companies like a Disney that are going to say and criticize parents' rights. They're going to criticize the fact uh, that we don't want transgenderism in kindergarten and first grade classrooms. If that's the hill that they're going to die on, then how do they possibly explain lining their pockets with their relationship from the Communist Party of China? Telling us how what we're going to teach our kids he's that there's the sort of culture war stuff is really his thing. Absolutely. I mean, even more so just in the last year, these culture wars have really helped and grow his popularity because he speaks in a way like the language of the Republican base. Right. And there's a, you know, there's like Twitter and like social media memes that like own the lives. And he pretty much is that, right? Like he speaks fluent and owning the lives. And <laughs> he loves anything that can cause a wedge between on a social issue. He will double down and absolutely own the subject and will not only hold press conferences about it, he will spend official time promoting the issue. And he will spend the entire legislative session prioritizing some of these most divisive concepts. And that's why you're seeing a lot of reaction, right? And some could argue that it's headlines that he might be really trying to seek out because the more controversial the topic, the longer you can stay. People at the bar will be talking about you and the media will be talking about you and then you're going to be at the national level. All this stuff that he does, these very right-wing culture wars positions that we've been hearing about, you, you told us before what a diverse state Florida is. How does those positions go down with the state's Latino voters? When you think about the Latino uh, vote or the Hispanic vote, it's not like they're all conservative or they're all Democrats. There are very diverse within that specific group. And so some of these culture issues really play well with conservatives. For example, there's very religious voters, right, who might not be totally open to some of the books about transgender kids that they're opposing in certain bills regarding the K-12 system. There's also the transgender athlete ban that DeSantis signed into law last summer. You see it with abortion as well, for example, restrictions that can play uh, in a very divisive way. You also see it with race discussions in the classroom. You can see it pretty much in any culture war issue that DeSantis has tapped into, it will create a division within these very important voting blocks for the governor as he tries to win re-election in November. 
Well, that's a lesson straight out of the Trump playbook, obviously. So there, that, I mean, we, you've, between the two, you just rattle through a lot of big similarities. In terms of the differences, Pete, I suppose it would begin with his resume. I mean, his background. Just tell us a little bit about him, because in a way, it's very un-Trump-like, the things he did before he got into politics. Just fill us in. He had a, a naval career where he was a JAG officer. He served in Fallujah. He kind of bounced around a little bit, uh, meets his wife, who is a kind of a power in her, on her own as a local TV journalist. He basically becomes one of the hangouts at Fox News. He was on Fox News, I think, more than anybody else other than Matt Gates during the last decade. He was a, a creature of the green room, they say. And so that's one of the reasons why he's always been so in tune with, I think, the Republican base. He even wrote a book in response to Obama's memoirs. You know, he ends up jumping into the race for governor against a very prominent Republican who was as foregone a conclusion as Jeb Bush for president and ended up in the same place when Donald Hmm. Trump ends up tweeting from Air Force One about Ron DeSantis. And from there, it was lightning in a bottle. Now, the downside is if you read a lot of the biography, if you talk to fellow members, this is one of the the least liked former members of Congress, a loner. There's a great anecdote about how he was on a trip to Afghanistan. He got on the flight, put on his AirPods and didn't talk to anybody for the 16 hour trip. And they say that was very representative of who Ron DeSantis is. Talk about the differences between him and Donald Trump. Donald Trump had a lot of national media training, producer of one of the biggest television shows. I am very suspect of what Ron DeSantis is going to be like when he gets into the retail politics of New Hampshire and Iowa, when he has to deal with a national media that he will have to deal with instead of being able to ignore the Capitol press corps, as he's done for the most part here in Tallahassee. It's very interesting that because these are they, they, there is a potential weaknesses there for him in the difference with Donald Trump that he perhaps lacks a couple of those strengths Donald Trump has. But on the other side of the ledger, Anna might be people say that the difference, big difference between Ron DeSantis is, and Donald Trump is that he's Ron DeSantis is disciplined and competent that he might bring Trumpism without the chaos. Uh, and that that could be a great political strength. What do you make of that? That is definitely like some of the most common analysis that I hear when it, when there's comparisons of Trump and DeSantis. Covering him, you know, at the state level and how he has run government and how he runs uh, agencies, there is some sort of control freak quality to his leadership style, if you will, because his group is so small and he only trusts so many people that there is more control of the situation because it's his way or the highway. But there is a lack of charisma sometimes, right? There is that lack of connection with people. And so it's sometimes his message is not delivered as well as it should be because of, for example, tone, or he might not care how people feel. He's not terribly empathetic to people, especially we saw that in the pandemic. You know, there's one way to communicate maybe your agenda and your platform and what you're going to sell to people, but he communicates it in a way that's combative and defensive most of the times. 
So, so let's say we get this, you know, what on MTV they used to call celebrity death match. Let's say we do get this absolute <laughs> showdown between the two of them. And it would be amazing because they would both claim to be Florida guys because that's now where uh, Donald Trump has residency. Let's say it gets into this head-to-head between them. What do you think uh, it, that will look like, Peter? And how do you think... Donald Trump would go after Ron DeSantis. And I'm struck by the fact he has already made a couple of barbed comments in his direction without exactly naming him. I mean, he did criticise politicians who refuse to say where they've been vaccinated. Because they're gutless. You've got to say it. Whether you had it or not, say it. But the fact is... And and he's been reported that Donald Trump described DeSantis as having a dull personality with no chance of beating him i mean what does does that tell you about how donald trump would go after ron DeSantis if it does get to a, a head-to-head battle between them for the republican nomination in 2024 i think one of the big factors you to keep in mind is that the chief aide-de-camp to trump right now is a woman named Susie wiles uh, she's basically the goat of florida political campaigns she's won the last four statewide here, including for Ron DeSantis. She was a chief advisor to DeSantis until she fell out of favor with him. And now she's over with Trump. And I and no one knows how to beat Ron DeSantis, I think, better than Susie Wiles. Most of those people who helped Ron DeSantis get through the general election are down at Mar-a-Lago now. So I think that that's one you know major component to it. I think number two, Trump is like that character on Seinfeld. I mean, he is just a a horrible breaker upper, and he will be able to go at DeSantis in a way that DeSantis has never dealt with. And I mean, there's stories about, you know, Trump making fun of DeSantis's weight um, and then DeSantis going on diets. There are all sorts of little personal ways that I know Trump will needle Ron DeSantis along the way. And I don't know that, like Anna was talking about, I don't know if he's got the, you know, the, the control to not respond to them do you think he's got a nickname lined up for him? What's he going to call him? I think, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> big Ron. I'm telling you, the weight issue for Trump is a big, like that has happened. There, there is several sources of mine have told me whenever Trump sees DeSantis on TV, he checks to see how he's buttoned his jacket. He's always mm. obsessed with DeSantis's weight. I think Donald Trump's going to call him Doughboy or something like that. <laughs> Ooh, that's but um, let's do this as quick as we can. It, what, what, how would you rate Ron DeSantis' chances, first of all, of getting the nomination, but ultimately of getting the White House? We'll put you on the spot first, Anna, and then you, Peter. I think it's a little bit too early to tell. I do definitely think that he has he's checking all the boxes to clear the pathway for a potential 2024 run. But first, Trump has to allow it. We saw a lot of people at the conservative national convention this year saying that they love Trump and they like DeSantis, but that DeSantis should wait his turn. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I think if Trump wants to run, I think Trump has it. And you, Peter, what do you think? How do you rate Ron DeSantis' chances? Uh, about basically one in four for the nomination right now. I think Trump is going to run. I think he still has a command on the base. Um, he's got more money right now than both political parties combined. I think that if he does become the nominee, I think he's got a better chance of beating Joe Biden than he does Donald Trump. Very interesting. Thank you both. On this podcast, we always ask our guests a what else question. This week, there have been confirmation hearings for Joe Biden's choice for the Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson. Republicans have been going after, branding her, trying to frame her as a 
radical liberal. How do you think that will go down with, there are a large number of African-American voters there in uh, Florida. How do you think black voters in that state react to seeing the first black woman nominated to the Supreme Court being critiqued, attacked really in that way? I mean, I think it's it's something to be expected, right, as, as in terms of the questioning that she's getting. Do, do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that, that babies are racist? But I guess it's to be expected. I mean, we saw the last uh, confirmation was pretty contentious with Brett Kavanaugh. So, I mean, I think Republicans are almost trying to circle back and do the same. Well, let's not forget, she's also got deep connections to Florida, to, uh, to Miami, et cetera. I will say this, it's kind of a non-issue right now. Uh, unfortunately, amongst a lot of Black Floridian elected officials, there's so many other, gosh, there's so many other culture war battles right now in Florida that they haven't had really enough time to get to speak out. The state senators that I know, they're engaged in the battle over LGBTQ rights right now. It's almost, we, sh we haven't been able to celebrate uh, this historic nomination. Peter, Shorsh, Anna Sabayos, thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And that is all from me for this week. Now, on the day that saw inflation rise in the UK by 6.2% in the 12 months to February, the fastest rise for 30 years, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, attempted to put the public's mind at ease when he presented his spring statement to Parliament. So how did he do? My colleague, John Harris, and his panel had quite a few things to say about that. So make sure to search for Politics Weekly UK to catch up. And as I mentioned last week, The Guardian is running a big podcast survey for the next couple of weeks, and we'd love as many people as possible to take part. So if you do have the time and you've got some thoughts, please click on the link, which we'll include in today's episode description. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens with research help from Natalie Kutena. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian.